presentation. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Uh, you know, June is Justice Month, and so we've had some special speakers with us. And this morning, we have Jennifer Wolf Williams with us. She's the executive director for humanitarian outreach uh, for migrant emotional health. She's going to talk to us about immigration justice. So um, let's welcome her and um, hear what she has to say. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. Thank you so much, Sarah. Good to be here. Um, I just want to tell you my story and stories of some other people. So just over 10 years ago, as our youngest uh, daughter's high school graduation approached, I, I felt like I felt what I imagine preachers mean when they talk about calling. Uh, there was something pulling me, something or someone pulling me in a vague new direction. And I am really grateful to this day that when I told my husband, Peter, we needed to move, he didn't ask me for a plan because I didn't have a plan. And it wasn't until after we were settled in our new home that I understood I was in the Dallas area to provide mental health services for asylum seekers. And it's been an amazing journey, but it has not always been easy on my faith. Um, and so the fact that this is worship is a challenging thought to me because I'm not sure I'm really good at worship anymore. Um, my faith is always being tested and I don't know where it's going, but I, um, one of the things that I know for sure is that that test doesn't come from the torture and trauma st- stories I hear from my clients. I, I seem to do okay with that. I've always known that horrors were out there and it, feel safer to me to face them than to let them hide. But, um, and I, if my faith falters in that context, I can always get, get it renewed through the resilience of the asylum seekers themselves, because many of them are people of strong faith, but where my faith has not been okay. Um, mostly is church. And I don't mean the act of being in church or any particular church, but more, church as it's come to be defined on Facebook or in some family reunions or gatherings of people who share my background, white, small town, Midwestern, conservative, um, but can't see the people I've come to love. And so today, honestly, you give me hope because you are church and you wanted to hear. And so I'm grateful for that hope. And, um, I, I need to just notice, you know, love your neighbor seems pretty clear and welcome the stranger seems pretty clear. And although that's often not what I hear from church, you gave me, give me something different today. And so I want to spend a few minutes just telling you about some of the people I've come to know, share their stories and um, then tell you how my story intersects with theirs and tell you what I'm doing now. From my earliest years in Dallas, I want you to see in your mind my borrowed counseling space, just a, a simple space uh, furnished for um, conversations among adults. But, but one day, a little girl sat in a chair that was far too big for her, and she answered my questions in monosyllables and stared at the floor. And when she finally looked up, I saw the most beautiful dark eyes filled with more tears than I ever understood eyes could hold. And when she finally let them spill and with them her grief, 
She explained to me that she didn't know where her daddy was. He was somewhere in ICE detention, someplace she couldn't find or reach. And next, on a different day, I want you to see a mother. And the mother is also pretty speechless, but she doesn't hold back her tears. She falls to the floor sobbing and her body is shaking with grief. And she tells me she doesn't know where her children, she are, she knows they're back in her home country, but she can't, she doesn't know exactly where they are or whether they're okay. And she cannot send for them until the U.S. immigration courts um, rule in her favor. So for now, with her uncertainty about her children's well-being and her inability to be with them, she doesn't know whether she wants to go on living. There are many forms of family separation, immigration-based family separation. And in 2018, Americans who had never been aware of immigration cruelties before were shocked to hear for the uh, audio recordings of small children who were crying and sobbing and terrified because they had been removed from their parents. They didn't know where their parents were. And we as Americans knew this was wrong. So we gathered in the streets by the thousands to protest. And no one needed a mental health professional to explain the harm that this kind of action does to children. Uh, the, the research is clear that this kind of separation and, and the other forms of trauma we were imposing on children and families causes toxic stress, impaired neurodevelopment, a lifelong risk of depression and PTSD, and even lifelong risk of, of medical conditions such as asthma, infections, cancer, diabetes, and stroke. Besides that, U.S. policies also harm those who carry them out and those of us who watch. They bring a risk of perpetration-induced traumatic stress, which is similar to PTSD, as well as an increased likelihood of future violence against others. But one thing I didn't understand at the time, or what most of us didn't understand at the time, and what I didn't understand until I started this work, is that immigration-based family separation is actually common. And it comes in many forms. There, we have immigration-based family separation to our nearest neighbors um, when we exclude them from being able to return to their families after working our fields. Families are forced apart by inhumane asylum, asylum um, applications that go on for years. Families are forced apart by the U.S. government's failure to acknowledge that a grandparent and grandchild also constitute a family. And families are forced apart by policies that allow children to enter but forbid parents from entry. So let me back up just a little and tell you some of the reasons people come. The little girl that I saw in my office that day came because gang members entered her school and held her brother at gunpoint as a warning to her father that he was not giving the gangs as much money as they had demanded. And today, the nonprofit that I lead meets regularly with families who are fleeing cartel violence. Uh, we also meet with women who are fleeing severe domestic violence in areas where the police take the perpetrator's side. 
Um, we serve parents who are trying to protect their daughters from female genital mutilation or FGM. And we serve members of the LGBTQ community who are fleeing violence, imprisonment, and death, as well as people whose um, politics or religion were persecuted by their government. Um, but even though I'm starting right now with these, these trauma accounts, it's really important for me to acknowledge that the asylum seekers I work with are amazingly strong people. They are strong in their weakest moments and they are resilient in their greatest pain. And they are these things not just for what they've survived, but for the richness they bring to a community and to a nation. We need them for a short time, they need us, but in the long run, we need them. But over the last few years, policy changes meant that it was harder and harder for asylum seekers to make it to the Dallas area. So I started making regular trips to the border regions. And in my early visits to Matamoros, Mexico, just across the bridge from Brownsville, I spoke with four Nicaraguans who were next in line for their interview with our border patrol. They told me they had fled home because government um, forces there had assassinated their neighbors and they were afraid they were next. So now they're at the, the port of entry to the U.S. and they've been waiting for days, actually, as being close to next in line. And they're dependent on volunteers to bring food and water because they're afraid if they leave the bridge, they're going to lose their chance for an interview. But when I was talking to them, it was already midday and Border Patrol had not processed anyone yet. And the day before that, they had processed only two people. So I walked farther out and farther out, there were families who were sleeping on the streets and um, just if they had a tarp, they might make a makeshift tent out of the tarp. And they too were dependent on volunteers um, for their survival. And they, those who felt like talking about it, all of them described extreme violence and extreme poverty in their home countries. And I also met Margarita, a little girl who came out of the crowd as I um, was distributing just some toiletry items, deodorants and um, toothpaste. And, and she, she was excited to see what I was doing, but I almost had nothing left. And I was afraid that this sweet little girl wasn't going to be able to give her anything. And I looked in the, in the bottom of my backpack, there were still some little packets of vitamin C. So I asked her if her mother was around and we skipped over to see her mother. And when she told me her name, it reminded me of a, a Sunday school song I used to know from long ago. So um, um, I, knelt down on the sidewalk and sang that little song to her. And she suddenly became really serious and she lifted one finger and she drew a circle on the lens of my glasses. And then she moved her finger and drew a circle on the other lens. And then I had to go. And to me, that was the most, the most horrible part about visiting Matamoros was always the walk back across the bridge um, the passport, the line for passport holders is short and simple, was quick, but it took us past a big glass wall and we could see on the other side of that glass wall a, a huge empty room with rows and rows of upholstered chairs, bathrooms, water, air conditioning, and it was empty. 
and the, the first time I went through, a, a, a local friend who was standing behind me whispered that this is the room where asylum is supposed to be processed. And meanwhile, just a few yards away, our border patrol were telling these families, we don't have room to process anyone else today. And Margarita slept on the street again that night. But even those first trips were, um, didn't really prepare me for what was to, to come because the brutality of the migrant protection protocol or MPP had not yet, was not yet in effect. And, um, until then, it was, um, standard practice for someone who passed their credible fear interview. Theoretically, they would be allowed into the U.S. to pursue an asylum claim, which is a longer process. But, um, with MPP, that stopped. And the, uh, the other name for the MPP was remain in Mexico. So that was our, the U.S. policy that made asylum seekers wait in makeshift refugee camps um, outside our ports of entry. And they were subject to cartel violence there because they were not protected. They were, they were not in their home countries. They had no, no protections at all. So they were subject to cartel violence, um, kidnapping, rape, they were traumatized, and um, so I partnered with another mental health professional, a, a counseling professor in the Rio Grande Valley, and we, we created a mental health flyer. I mean, it wasn't much, but it was we didn't know what else we could do. Um, and after we created this flyer, I went went back to Matamoros to distribute it. Um, and as I approached, I, I realized just at a glance, I could see that MPP had made everything a thousand times worse because what I saw were tents, the kind of tents you and I might use for a weekend getaway, just lined the street and the levee as far as I could see. And there were parents standing outside holding babies. There were people gathering sticks and cooking on open fires children playing in the dirt, no structures, no utilities. There were just 10 yellow outhouses to serve a community of 2,000 people. So I climbed the levee and walked between the coils of razor wire and looked up and I saw a woman who was sitting there with a vacant expression. And I didn't know how she would feel about my presence, so... I approached cautiously and introduced myself, Soy Jenny, and she said, Soy Violeta, and she invited me to sit. And we talked for a very short time before she said, all too matter-of-factly, I sent my daughter across yesterday. Her daughter was nine years old, and Violeta stood at the bridge and watched her child walk away she waited until Border Patrol took custody, and then she went back to her tent alone. Now, as we sat by her campfire, she said, I couldn't let her suffer anymore. She was raped here. We were both raped. Here in the camps, I asked, and Violeta said, yes. People are raped here, and people disappear too, adults and children. I couldn't let her stay any longer. 
And then Violetta looked away and she said, I'm going back to my home country now. The gangs murdered my parents when I was three and the same gangs are targeting me, but there's really nothing else it can do. I'm going back. And so at the end of the the day I, when I recounted this to my colleagues who were local, Brownsville, Matamoros, and they just looked tired. I was expecting them to say, oh, well, here's what we can do. They just looked tired. And they, they said, this happens all the time. And they were right. And frankly, the U.S. government planned it. Um, there were public statements released by Jeff Sessions and the Department of Homeland Security that acknowledged that, like zero tolerance family separations, MPP was put in place in order to deter. It was planned as an intentional harm. So today, MPP has ended, and many of those who were waiting in MPP have been allowed to cross, but Title 42 is still in place, and Title 42 does pretty much the same thing. So um, camps have maybe shifted location, but there are still many of the similar camps. And you've heard about the large number of unaccompanied minors who approach the border. Many of them represent Violetta's choice over and over and over, because with Title 42 in place, parents of asylum seekers understand that um, the U.S. government is going to turn them away, but um, maybe won't turn their children away. And there's one other thing that we really need to understand and acknowledge about what's happening here, and that is that these horrors would not have been planned for white families. Family separation and MPP are part of a long history of racist immigration policies, and they are part they're just one more manifestation of America's racial injustice. It would take more time than we have today for me to go into all of it, but it's a really important piece of the story that I need to say. And I also need to say that asylum is completely legal. And our asylum codes don't even require asylum seekers to enter at a port of entry. So don't be confused when you hear people describe asylum seekers as illegal immigrants. And beyond that, I would invite you to reflect on, on the, the scripture today that love is all the, the law demands. And there's one more uh, key point I need to make and about how the law works, and that is that asylum um, in, for asylum seekers, entry into the U.S. is always temporary. It just means that they are being allowed into process to um, to file a claim for asylum, and it's an, a huge process that none of us um, would would know how to do without an attorney. And most of the asylum applications filed in the U.S. after someone is allowed to file are denied. So the numbers vary by region and by judge and by year, but in general, as few as 10 to 30 percent of asylum applications are granted by the courts. And that number goes up significantly if the asylum seeker has an immigration attorney. And it goes up even more if the attorney partners with a mental health professional. 
One study put that as high as um, 89% for that last group. So that's what I'm doing now. Um, I partnered with a team of other mental health professionals to create the Humanitarian Outreach for Migrant Emotional Health, or HOME. And our clinicians interview asylum seekers wherever they are, whether that's outside ports of entry or in an ICE detention center or temporarily safe in their U.S. communities. And we document the trauma narrative that they share with us. We also document their emotional responses in the telling of the story and the responses, the symptoms that they may report now. And then we explain in writing whether their presentation is consistent with someone who has experienced actual trauma. And um, so, for example, immigration judges will often deny an asylum application if there's an inconsistency with a quantitative detail, such as um, an exact date or how many people were in the room when something happened. But mental health professionals understand that when our lives are at stake, when we're under a high threat condition, we remember smells, we remember sounds, we remember feelings. So uh, when we interview, when a mental health professional interviews an asylum seeker, we record those memories in an affidavit that becomes part of the legal case and the immigration attorney can file it with the asylum application. Sometimes, um, and we can also in that same affidavit explain why the person might not remember the quantitative details that the judge expects them to. And sometimes attorneys will reach out with, with urgent needs, such as a person who is having suicidal thoughts and is, is in um, solitary confinement in ICE, or a grandparent, grandchild family that's about to be separated at the border. And we do what we can. Um, it doesn't always change the immediate outcome, but at least our affidavit does become part of the legal record. And more often than not, it does change the immediate outcome. But either way, we build a body of evidence and we hope that we can help our clients to be safe and to be free and be with their families. Uh, so if you're wondering what you can do, then I'd be happy to have that conversation with you. And um, I would just say that, you know, home needs help. We need volunteers. We need funding. Other organizations need help with humanitarian assistance. And maybe most importantly, people of faith can advocate for policy change because nothing's going to get better at the policy level until lots of ordinary people say that it needs to. Moral recovery starts when those of us who are not targeted see what is wrong and refuse to pretend we didn't see it. And my hope for myself is that faith recovery starts the same way. And I'm happy to engage in conversation. Thank you, Jennifer. That was, <clears throat> thank you for sharing. <laughs> uh, does anybody have any questions or reflections? You can put your name in the chat and I will call on you. I, well, I have a question. Um, so you mentioned this a little bit at the beginning, but um, like, 
how do you take care of yourself as you're engaging with these types of stories and this kind of work where you said like sometimes things don't get better? Like how do you, what kinds of self-care do you practice? Well, first I would not say I'm really good at self-care, but, um, and probably Peter would have something to say about that. I spend a lot of hours on this and when I'm not working I find it hard to shift focus. One thing he's done that has helped me is he's taken uh, master naturalist courses. And so now when I go for a walk, instead of continuing to think about work, he can say, oh, what kind of flower is this? Or <laughs> So it does help me shift my thinking a little bit. Um, and honestly, today is in some ways self-care because being among a, in a community where people really care, that's helpful since for me, really the, the most, the biggest struggle I have has been with the pushback from people who share my background than, than being with people who really do um, care, then that's helpful too. Um, although I, I should say if anybody had, feels differently today, please feel free to say so. I'm comfortable with that too and, and happy to engage in, in whichever level of conversation we need to have. I, I don't, um, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think I can speak for everybody that we would not. We're on the same page here. Um, Kara and Oscar, are you guys here? I can't see you. Yes, we're here. I was, I was trying to figure out how to raise my hand. Yeah. Come, come on. Come into the conversation. Uh, Kara, t- tell Jennifer about yourself. <laughs> Talk to her about what you do. Uh, we live in El Salvador. And um, we do family-based care for uh, children who've been reintegrated after being institutionalized. And um, we also have an emergency shelter for abused children. And so we see a whole lot of everything that you're talking about every single day. And we've been doing this for 10 years. And, um, And I apologize that I've been like, distracted by this little baby who's making faces at me. Um, she just keeps well, staring. I am taking care of right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I was just, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of different organizations and because I'm originally from San Antonio and have been down here for a lot of years and, um, seeing all of the root causes of immigration just, every single day. Um, that's just my reality. And, um, I'm just wondering like what the, whether public or private entities in the U S like what are the partnerships, the bilateral partnerships with the different countries and organizations like, um, as far as like working with social workers and, um, you know, in the communities where, where these, families are coming from children families individuals are coming from i that that's always been my question so i'm excited to ask you that directly sure that's a great question and um i'd love to talk to you you know stay in touch with you uh, i think i met you i heard you speak one time um but when really? you were when you were in Texas, weren't you here like a few years back? I'm I'm in Texas very often. Okay. <laughs> I, I, was, it, I, was it at the Dallas I'm, campus? Was it where? 
was it at the Dallas campus? Oh yes, yes, that's right. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, thanks. Thing. Yep, yep. Yes, I was because of Ben. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I um, we met and spoke, but I listened. I heard you speak and and we talked very briefly. I remember you. I remember. Oh, thank you. you. Yes. Okay. That's that's fun. Yes. Good to see you. <laughs> good to see you too. And I may have told you that Peter and I also li- we lived in Honduras. Not um just for a few years, but in a oh, yeah. long time. That's right, yes. Um, so maybe we can talk about what a partnership might do on your end. Um, what I can say about what I know on a larger scale, what's happening, there are a lot of collaborations, um, and the, it's so, so large that it gets pretty complex. So like I'm in one collaborative discussion that we have met sometimes every day. Um, right now we're down to once or twice a week. And, but that's just specific to the Rio Grande Valley. And so there are people who are working on the Mexico side and the U.S. side in that group. And then there's another border alliance group that's very broad sponsored by Save the Children. And it includes um, Mexico side and the U.S. Um, and again, I'm in a, a mental health consortium sponsored by U- UN and UNICEF that we we meet um, monthly or so. And there's uh, some Mexico presence, mostly not not a lot. Although of course um, UN and UNICEF do have theirs, but. But I am not in any groups that I'm aware of that have a Central American connection. And that would be really interesting um, to see what we might learn from you, um, what the needs could be. I mean, our our opinion is, and we've talked about it before. This is my husband, Oscar. Hello. Our baby. Hi, Oscar. Um, it's very, very complicated to do like close social work and social services with, um, in the communities where these, uh, individuals and families are coming from. But it's, it's just, it, it takes a lot of resources, a lot, a lot of time. It's very complex, but that, that, to us would be like what, like we would love to share our knowledge as a service, social services provider with your organization if we had and do case management like in conjunction. Um, I just wonder if that's, that would ever be someday a possibility because that to me, it's just so key to have the information of the, of, what's happened here what are these traumatic situations what are the what the context the specific context is of each case so i'm just wondering if that i mean that's kind of like a big picture dream but i that's that to me would be key i don't know what what do you think about that i think i want to talk to you some more okay i'd love to to figure that out yeah i'll send you my email address and contact perfect yes that, that sounds great. So, and I'm, as I'm thinking that through, I think it needs to be more than just home. Definitely, I would like that. Um, right now, because we're small and new, we're really focused on the forensic end to try just to bring people into safety of some sort. Um, we hope to eventually be able to bring in the counseling end, and I've done plenty of both for my private practice, but I think that what you have to offer could inform both. 
And so I want to introduce you to some other groups too, but I would definitely like to have that conversation with you. I'm sending you my contact right now. <laughs> Great. Good. Yeah, okay. Y'all are taking care of it. I was going to email. Glad y'all are getting it together. Uh, John, I think. Yeah, John. Yeah, so <clears throat> one of my email addresses is Equipping Leaders. And uh, as I've worked uh, with homeless people, uh, I was homeless shelter for three years. Before that, I helped homeless people a lot. I got to know social workers. And every social worker that I ever contact, I work with a veteran neighbor. That's what brought me in contact with Storyline, Lord knows, 10, 15 years ago. Um, every social worker has at least two to three times too many people. There's no social worker that has a reasonable caseload. And so all of them are subject to burnout. Half the people that I deal with workaholism are burned out. They're just flat burned out. Now, being a resource guy, that's one of my other uh, emails, what I do is look online resources like the ones I'm putting in the chat here in about three seconds. Those are the links that I sent to our speaker last week because that sweet lady is subject to, guess what, burnout. And here are the links that I send always to newcomers to workaholics uh, in case anybody that's not in social work wants to wants to get some leverage uh, uh, with, their, with their possible workaholism for themselves or their friends or neighbors or whatever. Or, uh, so this is what helps. This is a, what I'm about to send the links now is about, uh, 50% of what I share with people giving them the traction. And you can get, if you go, if anybody wants to, to save the chat, you go to the bottom where you can make, a, where you can make a chat. And there's, there's a little icon that says file beside that. It's the three dots. You hit the three dots and that gives you an option to save the whole chat on your computer. So no copy pasting necessary. So my concern is is to is to in your case and all and, and every missionary that I've ever known is to address burnout and prevent burnout because you're just doing such a good work and you have a, a mere 24 hours a day and not you know 48 hours in a day and you and those links are about self care. They're very it's a four page PDF a two page PDF. It's about self care and um, so heads up. Thank you. And that's, that's, a, that's a, a really important observation on your part, John, because that's a huge issue for those of us doing border work. And um, sure. you can imagine. Obviously, you're a human. You're not a robot. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Sarah Holland. Uh, well, we can, um, I was just going to ask if you've had any interaction with the unaccompanied minors here in Texas, um, if you've had any. Some, yeah. yes, some. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course, any of us during the time that Catholic Charities, that we had the center here, then anyone could go in through Catholic Charities as a volunteer. That was not home. That was um, my did that some as an individual. Um, what home has been able to do is once unaccompanied minors are released from the influx centers and with their sponsoring families, then we can provide the same service that we would um, with other asylum seekers. 
Miles? Yeah, so I was just curious to ask, um, you know, we talked about MPP and now Title 42 that exists, and I was curious, and uh, and maybe the answer is, is there, there aren't any right now, but are there any from a policy level at the state or federal level, are there any um, policy proposals that you're excited about that deserve more, you know, support um, or, or even people at the policy level doing good work or, or advocating for things that you're optimistic about? Well, so one thing that encourages me is that Title 42 will end. It has to end because it is related to the pandemic. It's actually a CDC policy that was um, kind of pulled from obscurity under the last administration and applied to the border in weird ways because people still cross the border for business and pleasure. But um, it was then post just to apply blanketly to asylum seekers. And so there's really not any way that it can help from disappearing at some point once the government says, okay, the pandemic is winding down. It's still, there's still no uh, word as to when that might happen. And there's a lot of conversation about it because um, activists and, and uh, people who uh, lead humanitarian groups like mine will always, are, are always in conversation with the government about it. And they're, they're not giving any concrete information, but there's just no way it can keep going. So once that stops, um, I think there will be more people able to come. And at, at that point, that might be a time for us to have a different conversation about what um, people in Dallas can do locally. Uh, right now, there are fewer people able to come in, but I think that will change. That still doesn't change the asylum process itself um, and the, the fact that Coming is that entering is just one step, but I think it will fix that step. And I would say on the broader scale, what gives me hope is the fact that the government responds to the people. If we have, if we speak with a loud enough voice in large enough numbers, um, I, I really, I have some hope that we as a people, when our hearts change, that we still live in enough of a democracy that we can make those changes that come into policy, but it takes a lot of courage on our part. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Brian Walker. Jennifer, I just wanted to express my thanks for you coming and speaking to us today. And um, the, the pictures that you shared were also really impactful. Um, but then uh, also your words and um, the slide that you had that kind of put some of the recent policies into the historical context of racist policies was really impactful and, um, you know, gave me a lot to kind of, I, you know, my, some of your, what you shared, I was aware of, but just that context and that lens was really impactful and has given me some things to think about. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing that up because that's really a, a core piece of this work is to acknowledge the racism involved in it. And I, I wish we had had more time to just talk about that because it's really um, it, it's it, it just wouldn't happen if there weren't a racist element. Mm. Yeah. Um, ben, I'm, we're gonna <clears throat> Ben's gonna be our last person, and then we'll um, 
wrap up and do some praying. So, Ben. Hey, Jennifer. I'm just, uh, like Ryan, I'm just so grateful um, you're here with us today. Uh, I, I, the question I have is better than the one that's going to come out because I, I can't quite figure it out. You, you mentioned, I know you, and so, and I know these people, so I feel okay asking this. You mentioned how church has been um, uh, a place of frustration, a place of uh, grief, however you worded it. What What are some of, um, can you share more about what you've seen in the church in general and its failure to do the right thing in this? Um, maybe where, where have you experienced um, that sense of loss, that sense of pain from people who are supposed to be doing the right thing? Mm, thank you, Ben. Yeah, that's a great question. And so I, I, two things come to mind. And one is that the church is filled with people who see this very differently and that piece I almost understand better than the second one. But so, for example, um, I was speaking, um, not a, um, did kind of a a presentation in a church foyer one time with just table and billboards and or not billboards, just trifold boards and all that. Just um, had some stuff up about immigration, and a man came by and was really upset with the fact that the group and I were talking about this, and he said, "We have too many." I find this word very unbearable to say, but I use it. We have too many illegals and that, and you can just see them everywhere. And he just kind of gestured, you know, out the window. And I asked him, how do you know when you look at somebody on out there, what their legal status is? And he just repeated what he had already said. And I think that to me, that just really illustrates that one layer of that, that there, there is that rejection of the other person because they look different from me. And so I make assumptions about them based on, on that. And, and I should say that that's, that even not everyone who disagrees with the um, the policies in the ways that I do would be for that reason. There's also, you know, just the fear of, of a, a lot of other pieces that we don't have time to go into. But so one of the levels, one of the layers is that there are people within our churches who are very strongly opposed to allowing asylum seekers into the country. And then the other layer that I find more frustrating is that even though I think the majority of church leadership is in favor of letting love fulfill the law or in acting in love, loving our neighbors and welcoming the strangers, I think the majority of church leadership um, agrees with that. But what I have found is they aren't willing to have it said out loud. And especially not in any way that speaks as a voice of the church, right? So that's why I was really excited to be asked by you to speak to a church because I've only ever been asked to speak to small groups or Sunday school classes as so that there's not a church voice that says this is important. And I 
find that I have found that whether it's um, just me or, or anyone or even the church leader, the pastor, preacher himself or herself speaking to it, um, to the church body, that missing piece, that silence has been the most horrible thing for me. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think, I think for all of us here in Storyline, we went through various stages of uh, guilt and denial and outrage and just kind of um, shock. Well, and not even shock, expectation. I mean, we see the things that you're talking about and... Um, it's heartbreaking and you're so right. Like we're willing to say things at a a lower level, but not willing to make these broader statements um, for fear of offending or um, being divisive. And um, it's so terrible because we're passing that all along to all this trauma along to people um, who do not deserve it. Uh, we're avoiding conflict and passing it along to other people. Um, I, I just, I heard you speak before Jennifer and I just was moved by it then. And I'm moved by what you said. Now you have a very soft voice and a, pre- a soft presence, but so like your words are so powerful and your ideas are so powerful and your stories and experiences are so powerful and really grateful to have gotten to hear you speak again. So thank you. Um, is there, how can we pray for you uh, and for home and for the work you're doing? Thank you, Sarah. And you, your words are really encouraging to me. I would just um, ask that you pray at three levels and one would be for the migrant community themselves. And that's a lot of variation, a lot of need. But there are many people across the globe who are forced to flee. Um, and I would also like prayers for everyone who's trying to help. And there are some specific needs of each group. And, and I can, can tell you more about home. But really, I just want prayers for the strength of, of everyone who's doing this work that we stay encouraged and stay focused and take time for self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I want uh, the third prayer is for, for you and for the church and the community, because every one of us has to grapple with, what do I do now? You know, I, I know about this. And I'm not sure what my role is. I don't really know what it all means for me. And so I would like prayers at that level too. Great. Thank you. Um, Let's pray. God, I thank you for Jennifer and for the work that she's doing. Um, We do come and uh, pray for the people around the globe um, in countries where they're suffering, God, and as they come to um, come to the borders, um, God, I pray that you would smooth their way, that you would open doors for them, um, 
God, that unjust policies would be changed, um, that you would move in a really mighty and powerful way. Uh, God, I pray for the people who are helping, um, that they would have reservoirs of strength that are continuously renewed. Um, God, that you would uh, give them times of rest, times of self-care, times of renewal and um, God just replenish their hope um, because we know it's very draining to just watch things that you can't control um, happen over and over again and we feel helpless in the face of that but we believe and trust that that you're there um, and that you see all of this suffering on the parts of the people who are um coming to the U.S., we see the suffering of the people who are helping. Um, and God, we ask you to intervene um, and to move. And God, we uh, pray for the church. Um, we, in Storyline, we all can look around and we can see what's wrong. Um but having the courage to let go of things that are comfortable for us, um, I think sometimes that's hard. I I see racism and I see um, the way that the church has allied itself with power and politics in America. And I want to renounce that and back away from that. But I also don't know what it looks like to live in a world where... Um, we're not allied with the political seat of power. Uh, I don't know what the church looks like. Um, and it feels like we're afraid to let things die. I'm afraid to sometimes to let things die because I don't know what's coming next. Um, but God, I believe and trust that you are a God of new creation, um, that you are not a God of destruction, but that you're a God who's continuously creating and building and making things new. And so I pray that as you're making things new within the church, within our nation, that we would not be afraid, but that we would lean in and embrace you and all that you are doing. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.